When the world goes dark and the sun turns black, then Stitcher. This week's show is brought to you by Stitcher Premium. Looking for a better way to listen to podcasts, more podcasts, ad-free podcasts, exclusive podcasts? Are you a fan of stand-up comedy albums or shows like How Did This Get Made? One of my personal favorites, kind of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 of 2019 podcasts. Well, try Stitcher Premium, why don't you? Because who knows, you might love it like I do. But don't pay for it, silly. I mean, I mean, why not try it for free for 30 days instead? By going to www.stitcherpremium.com, clicking the big blue button that says Go Premium, and signing up using the promo code Drabblecast. There's a box you can check there so you won't be auto-billed if you don't want. You're helping the Drabblecast out when you use that promo code. And heck, you're not paying anything for it, so why not at least get in there and rate as much of that good audio shit as you can? But like I said, you might just wind up loving it as much as I do and sticking around. Who knows? That's what free trials are all about. Again, that's stitcherpremium.com. Promo code Drabblecast. Welcome to the Travelcast, episode 416. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Wrapping up HP Lovecraft Month this year, we hope you enjoyed our offerings, from our original adaptation of The Rats of the Walls to our three original commissions, Dance Siege Swoop by Robert Reed, The Best Scarlet Ceremony Ever by Shannon Garrity, and our story this week by a new face in the Travelcast, Brian Miller. We brought back the hit story Boojum by Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Manette as this month's Travel Classics episode, with special commentary by writer and Travelcast fan Abby Hilton. And for those of you supporting the Drabblecast with $10 a month donations and subscribe to Drabblecast B-Sides, we brought you two more stories, Looking for Jake by China Mieville and The Shadow Over My Dorm Room by Laura Perlman. Busy month. Month and a half? But it's been a blast as always. Let's keep things going, because I think you're going to really love our story this week. Necessary Cuts by Brian Miller. Brian's a Minnesota-based writer and performer whose horror stories have appeared in Intrinsic Magazine and the forthcoming anthologies Hellfire Crossroads and The Monsters We Forgot. His other work has appeared on the CBS Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson and Sirius XM Radio, and he's currently writing for the upcoming Comedy Central roast of Alec Baldwin, which I think is pretty cool. Stay tuned after the story for an author's note from Brian himself that you don't want to miss, detailing some of the inspiration and background of this original tale. For now, though, we bring you Necessary Cuts by Brian Miller. The manuscripts I read are haunted. 
commas vanish forever into the void. Subjects and verbs struggle in bloody disagreement. Infinitives are cleaved with a dull axe. Sentence fragments ablated at one ragged end lay strewn between the margins. I take an exorcist's solemn pride in banishing these warped creatures from the village, sending slapdash monstrosities back to the murky dark from whence they came. The pages come in and the pages go out. My reward is the warm tingle of equilibrium, having restored order to some tiny corner of the world. Well, that and a paycheck. You're a professional stickler, Karen told me once, maybe a little less charitably than I'd liked. I'm in love with a snoot for hire. I don't really expect her to understand, though sometimes I wish she did. Isn't that the untold story of every romance? Karen has a degree in sports and recreation. She organizes children's summer day camps and intramural youth sports leagues for the parks department. Her pixie-cut hair is always a little askew, t-shirts neck-stretched, baggy jeans frayed at the cuffs like the ramshackle uniform of Team Carefree. Karen's laying across my lap when I first see the Brumlow manuscript. The knots of her calves drape over my legs, and her bony ass presses against my thigh. My laptop balances on her knees. She's got her lithe arms stretched behind her head. I'm absently running my fingers through the short bramble of hair beneath the sleeve of her t-shirt. I love those feminine tufts and the delicate baby cactus prickle of her downy legs. Not like the bramble of stubble I shave off my face every morning. One of the little edits I make to my own body according to the style guide I grew up with. Right away, I can tell the Brumlow manuscript is different. It's 42 pages long, and at a glance, not obviously fiction, nonfiction, or poetry. The tabs stagger drunkenly across the page. The haphazard punctuation begs you to search for elaborate patterns, like futures told in scattered chicken bone voodoo. In the first sentence, Papamot. That grew me out of the muck, just as his self grew out of the muck. So I could know the others when time came. Time is now. I click away from the file back to the email from my editor, Ragoff, which I hadn't bothered to read. Usually, all of these assignments were self-evident, tedious technical manuals, ad copy, bloviating self-published memoirs. This was something else. Hey David, it said. I asked the client for clarification and never heard back, but we've already received payment in full, so just you know, do your best. Thanks, Ragoff. I reread the first few pages of the file, hoping to get a sense of how to even start editing it. It appeared to be part rant, part confession, and part instructions for a ritual. Certain names and phrases repeat at odd intervals like atonal choruses. 
run-on sentences spliced with Frankenstein commas devolve into vulgar invective. The sickly prose is liberally spiked with a word that I won't type here, only one that I use occasionally in heavy traffic. I try to keep the disparate threads of the manuscript from tangling in my mind. The stories of the missing boys, the babbled procedures, the invocations of Papamut. I keep doubling back in the file. Somehow the longer I read it, the longer it gets and makes even less sense. Finally, I start editing. I try to consolidate redundant phrases, smooth out sentences, barbed edges. I form paragraphs out of vicious nonsense. I work with the confounded diligence of a lost tribesman trying to repair the shattered parts of a downed airplane. At the very least, I try to apply some familiar structure to the incoherence. At some point, I realize that Karen has slid away from me off the couch to do her nightly yoga on a ratty purple mat. I catch her stealing glances at me between downward dogs and bridge poses. You're making weird faces, she says, and you're mumbling. I tell her sorry. The file Ragov sent me is really strange. I just want to plow through it so I can send it off tonight and forget about it. It's squeaky and gross, and there's really not even a way to clean it up. So just rearrange the commas and send it back. Well, I mean, it still needs to be done right. You can't just pretend that rules don't exist. Karen smiles so easily. Well, I can't complain, since you always do our taxes, but holy shit, you're a nerd. I come join her a few hours after midnight when I send the Brumlow manuscript back to Ragoff. I delete the downloaded file. I dump my trash file. I cut it right out of my life. I don't sleep well that night, or the next. I have a dream that's actually a memory perverted at the fringes. I'm back in preschool, sitting cross-legged on the playroom carpet constructing a Lego castle with a wiry, dark-haired boy named Eddie Hall. I'm plucking mint-sized plastic bricks from a bucket to add to my side. All the bricks are blue or green, and I'm doing my best to stagger them in a checkerboard aquamarine pattern. I notice that Eddie is adding yellow and red bricks to his side. He doesn't even look up when I try to correct him. He just says yellow is his favorite color after red. I try to explain to him that the castle won't look right with the mismatched colors. I can't articulate why, and the pressure of this confusion steams my red face. I'm about to start crying when Eddie says I'm being mean. I break one of his yellow bricks off the top to show him. He stands and kicks the whole structure to pieces. That all happened, but in the dream, Eddie's face isn't flushed with a temper tantrum. It's livid purple. His eyes are black. He kicks the crumbled castle like he's stomping the last breaths out of some creature he found squirming on the backside of a road. 
I throw myself protectively over the castle's battered foundation. Sharp cornered Legos tattoo stinging configurations in the soft skin of my arms and neck and chest as he raises one of his kid sneakers over my head, poised to crash down on the side of my face. When I'm thrashing feebly next to Karen, who sleeps carefree as a corpse, I can still feel the tingle of those Legos biting into me. I breathe and wait, but the feeling doesn't subside. When I run my hands along the insides of my arms, I can feel something rigid there, like a whole coral reef of calcium deposits beneath my skin. The designs are not haphazard. My fingers trace hard shapes that form distinct letters. I fuss over one like a newly blind person trying to read a braille sign until I'm positive I can discern a character of the word. Suffer, suffer, suffer. I bolt up and rush down the lightless hallway. As I'm moving, I keep running my hands down my body, feeling more of those little spurs of language beneath my belly button, on my hips. I feel them floating like stones between my balls, inside my scrotum. There's a terrible second after I flip the switch on the bathroom that I swear I can see a few words disappearing back into my skin. I clutch at my stomach and feel the word S-T-A-B, stab, smoothing out between my left nipple. Or I think I do. When I look closer in the mirror, I don't see anything but my own panicked face, wide-eyed, with my hair matted to my sweaty forehead. I'm still leaning over the bathroom sink, just breathing when I feel a hot pinch low down in my gut. It doubles me over. I feel a wet gush in my underwear. When I pull back the elastic waistband of my underwear, I see I haven't pissed myself. There in the fabric is a little squirt of blood, like a period, except it's not a period. There in the blue cotton, written in muddy red, is a perfect semicolon. I can even make out the font. It's Time's New Roman. The next morning, I'm on the couch with a heating pad in my lap, and I get an email from Ragoff. Hey, David. Resending you the Brumlow file. The client resubmitted it with a note saying to do it right this time. Super annoying, I know, but they offered to pay double for a second edit. Already sent in the payment, too. I know it's a chore, but if they want to keep throwing money at us, I mean, <laughs> let them. No worry on your end if you can't satisfy their vague-ass demands. You know you're my ace. Best, Ragoff. I don't even open the file. I type out a quick response to Rogoff that I prefer he send this job to one of his other freelancers. He responds almost immediately and makes me even queasier. Yeah, the client asked specifically that you redo it. They must think you're onto something. And we've already got the cash, uh, literally. A delivery guy came by with a big box of money. 
mostly quarters, dimes, and some singles. The coins were all oxidized, like somebody raided a wishing well. The whole box smelled like a lake. Guess they'd never heard of PayPal. Your rate on this one doubles too, by the way. Just do your best if you can, and I'm, I'm going to sling you an easy one next time. I tell him fine. I don't start back to work, though. Instead, I spend the whole day drinking tea and watching old episodes of Seinfeld until Karen comes home. She heats up a can of soup to bring me on the couch, gives me a back rub, refills my pot of tea. I select the night's entertainment, more Seinfeld. It must still be surly because just before bed, she asks me what's wrong. Like she's hurt, not angry. I squeezed her hand and tell her about this stupid manuscript that makes no sense, that some weirdo client wants me to redo for him. So just do it like they want and screw them. Take the money and run. I tell her I'm trying to do it right, but I don't know how. Forget about it, right? Right? It's not the Manga Carta. Magna Carta. Karen's jaw grinds. Edit them, not me. She stalks off to bed. I'll apologize in the morning. I won't be sleeping anytime soon, though. So as the night limps towards tomorrow, I open my laptop. The Brumlow file is exactly the same as the original. None of my changes have been made. The sickly sensation in my abdomen dulls as I reread the first few pages. The words are more familiar, but somehow make even less sense. Two dozen crimes against grammar leap off the screen. They're only misdemeanors compared to the actual crimes described. All those details about ropes and chains and the boys asking why. It occurs to me that I should just turn this over to the police. There are no specific locations or times referenced. I'm not sure which police department I'd even call. Maybe Ragov would know? But it's not a crime to write fiction or poetry, or whatever this is. And it would be tough to make a coherent confession about anti-poetry, like, we shape the clay of beginning into the shape of end. With faithful hands of the clay, clay, you fuck-shitting bastard, gargling the silt of Papamud. Screw it. I scroll to the top of the first page and start editing. I use AP-style, rigid as a knife's edge, to field-dress the thing, yanking out coiled guts of bile-black prose, pruning nubs of excess punctuation, carving whole sections away. I leave only the bones. I spend the rest of the weekend thrashing in a tangle of soured sheets. I'm like a gif of a sick person, endlessly repeating the same sweaty paroxysms. I leave the bedroom only to shuffle to the bathroom, where I fold over with attacks of diarrhea that smell like a swamp. When I'm awake, I struggle for sleep, and when I sleep, I dream about Eddie Hall kicking my apartment to rubble, while Karen's screaming face recesses into the soupy earth that breathes like an asthmatic toad. When I try to watch Anodyne TV, I can't quite make out what they're saying. I can't read either, 
although sometimes I can see words in the pockmarks of the textured ceiling, or forming in the dust motes that dance through the windowsill's sunbeam spotlight. I can almost make out what the dirt is trying to tell me. Monday morning, before she goes to work, Karen palms my fevered forehead. A dark little apostrophe of concern forms at her brow. She tells me if I'm not feeling better by the time she's home, we're going to urgent care. I want to tell her I think it's something I read. I just don't know how to say it and make sense. I have food poisoning of the brain. I was only trying to make the necessary cuts. Karen sweeps my greasy hair away from my clammy forehead. She blinks down at me with concern. I also don't tell her about the patterns I see in the saffron-thread capillaries around the rim of her bloodshot eyes. The left one says stab. 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 The right one says muck. I lay twisted in bed until 10.30 when I hear a knock at the door, closer to a pounding. I can smell the staleness of my pajamas when I get up to drag myself to the door. Nobody's outside. A thin manila envelope lays on the stoop where the welcome mat would go. I know what it's going to be even before I peel the top open. At first I think a gush of crickets and spiders rain down onto the floor. I fling the package against the wall. More brittle bugs spring forth. No, not bugs. Dead leaves. The envelope is packed with them, brown and palsied to the brittle ends. And there it is, nesting in the dead foliage. A slim sheaf of paper. The Brumlow Manuscript. The pages are dirty and warped, but they don't look especially old. Just waterlogged. The words on the manuscript perfectly mirror the text in the file, right down to each prolonged indentation and string of stuttered profanity. The handwriting is neither arcane script nor furtive scrawl. The penmanship of every single letter appears to be different, as though thousands of hands each contributed a single character. I feel something else knotted at the bottom of the envelope, in a cocoon of crunching leaves. I shake the whole mess onto the living room floor to discover a thick wad of money wrapped in a paper band. The bills are old, minted before the redesign in the 90s. They're threadbare and bleached to the color of flood water. It's a salad mix of ones, tens, fifties, and several two-dollar bills. Several hundred bucks altogether. The paper band peels off to reveal a streak of ink on the inside. More handwriting, with those distinctly scrawled individual letters. Just a sentence fragment. Fix it right, David. I flip the envelope over. No name or address, no stamps, no return address. The floor turns marshy beneath my feet as I run for the bathroom. I make it just in time to hit my knees as I start retching. When I open my stinging eyes, I see I've thrown up nothing but pulpy pink stomach lining. 
a few hundred slivers of me slick the water's surface. I take a closer look. The bloody little bits form a constellation of punctuation. Gory periods, semicolons, hyphens, umlauts, virgules, and gulamats swarm together. Now I can see letters in the ichor, too. They float haphazardly, linking to form words, throat, splay, gash, before breaking apart. I sag against the base of the sink. I can barely move. My gut, my throat, my veins, they're all full of dead words. In the din of my chattering mind, I hear Karen's voice. Just do it like they want. Screw them. I crawl from the bathroom to the living room. Smears of leaves and dust crust my knees and palms. The Brumlow manuscript lays there in the center of the chaos like some baby thing exploded from its egg. I slide the pages over to my computer desk and I pull myself up into the chair. My old laptop hums faithfully. I transcribe the manuscript. I'm careful to maintain the inscrutable tablature and scattershot punctuation. I blaspheme the names of Shun and Strunken White. I recreate the strange rhythms and jarring atonal shifts. Additionally, I add a comma, a dash, a clip, or a phrase. I can't say why, but I'm certain these alterations are correct. I even add a line here and there. I surprised myself with a stanza about bloody shit boys screaming in the soil, broke back clinging to heaven's bedrock. I leave the rituals unchanged, sacrosanct as the idiomatic instructions of an old family recipe. I don't know when I'm finished. I know I did, even if I don't remember sending the file back to Ragoff when I was done. I must have crawled back into bed. I must have. I waken to early sunshine. The light has the porcelain white freshness of a sun that hasn't yet burned itself orange. Next to me the covers are cool. The pillow smells like chlorine and sunscreen. I can hear Karen clattering around the kitchen. When I stand up, my joints rattle off a 21-bone salute. I must have slept half a day. I feel good though. The ache is gone from my head, my belly. My eyes pull tight focus. I drowsily run my fingers across the squishy softness of my arms, my stomach. No strange ridges or indentations. I'm tabula rasa. My shirt and underwear reek. I shake them off under a hamper and stand under a lukewarm shower spray. Afterwards, I dry myself off, drop the towel onto the floor, and pad barefoot into the kitchen without bothering to dress. Morning, sunshine, Karen starts to say as she scrapes a clot of jam onto a layer of dark toast. Then she glances over her shoulder at me and says, Oh, hello there. I cross the kitchen to join her. The combination of sunlight and air conditioning feels, feels amazing against my skin. Karen presses against me, 
I kiss her neck. She reaches back to tickle her fingers down my ribcage. You certainly seem to be feeling better, she says. I grind against the warmth of her back. Why don't you tell me more about how I feel? In one move, she spins around, kisses me, and pushes away with the hand not holding the jelly-slick toast. I gotta go. We're doing aquatics today with the preteens. <laughs> Hormone soup. But speaking of which, hold that thought. She looks me up and down, slowly enough so I'll notice. Have a great day. And maybe we'll to-be-continue this when I get home. I'll pick up Indian. No sushi. I slap her ass hard on the way out the door. I want to do it even harder. Even harder, harder, harder. Karen shoots me one last eyebrow-raised look on her way out the door. I don't know what's gotten into you, but I'm not complaining. I took your advice, I tell her. Don't be so rigid. Just let things happen. As she closes the door, she tells me she loves me. I smile. I feel relaxed. Why shouldn't I? Life's been good. Why fight it like the other shit prick rotten bastard shit prick Be part of the change. We come from the change. We shape the clay of beginning into the shape of the end. The end. This. This is not the end. Hey folks, Brian Miller here. Thanks so much for listening to the story. I really hope you enjoyed it. And it was a, a real thrill to me to have the story on the Drabblecast, especially as part of HP Lovecraft Month. Necessary Cuts definitely began as an HP Lovecraft inspiration. Uh, I was thinking about the Necronomicon one day, you know, as people do. And I thought that if somebody wanted to mass distribute this cursed text, it would still have to have an editor and a proofreader, so, you know, what would happen then? But right from the start, I didn't want the book in question to be the actual Necronomicon, for a couple of reasons. In Lovecraft's biographies and his correspondence, he clearly gets a kick out of sneaking in references to his colleagues and their stories. But when he wasn't contracting his services out to other writers for extra money, uh, like in his weird brief partnership with Harry Houdini, He's pretty resistant to the idea of collaboration. He doesn't really seem interested in writing Cthulhu with his friends, he wants to read their original mythologies. Plus, there's the whole August Durleth legacy of appropriation, where what starts off as a tribute maybe veers into playing with dead things, and, you know, children shouldn't play with dead things, according to a movie I saw. 
The other reason uh, to me is that it's the fun part of writing a haunted manuscript story is coming up with the haunted manuscript. The fun part of writing a monster story is coming up with the monster. I don't want to farm out the fun part and then just spend my time filling in the setting and the dialogue. So uh, the Necronomicon, of course, is presented by Lovecraft as this kind of arcane, elegantly evil scholarly work. So I wanted this manuscript to be the opposite of that, you know, vulgar and violent, like maybe if Leatherface and the Boggy Creek Monster rewrote Dianetics or something like that. Uh, and for the record, I don't know who Papa Mud is or what Papa Mud is. I have some vague ideas about the author behind the Brumlow manuscript, but mostly I haven't I haven't thought it out too much past the borders of the story. Maybe sometime I'll, I'll write another one and, and figure out more about it. Uh, and lastly, the, the copy editing concept. So my regular job is actually my night job. I'm a stand-up comedian, which is, let me tell you, a high-speed money train. So to supplement my income for years, I've done freelance editing and proofreading. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on both sides of the red pen. Uh, and I, I do have inordinately strong feelings about diction and punctuation, so I share the righteous obsession with the proper formatting. But from the other side, it's a very fun revenge fantasy for anybody who's ever had a story hacked up by an editor. Not at Drabblecast, of course. Here we appreciate that sometimes editing has consequences. That's great, Brian. And so true. Man, I tell you, as the editor of a self-described weird fiction podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors, this story really speaks to me, as I'm sure it does Sandra, Nate, Nikki, Matt, Bay, or anyone else who's ever edited or read Slush for the Drabblecast. You guys out there, you, I mean, you really, you take that strange story slogan f***ing seriously, don't you? Anyways, I love this one. Editing an author's story is really just about helping your audience better make sense of the world that the author builds when it comes down to it. And Lovecraft, of course, making sense of any world is a fool's errand. Which is why maybe so many of his stories, exactly as our protagonist in this story encounters them, just have so many crazy places that need to be edited. Yeah. Excessive modifiers and prolix descriptions of things which aren't even described at all. I mean, yeah. We hope you found Brian's story and our production of it incredibly, inconceivably, uh, undescribably awesome. And now to our 100 character story winner this week by Eton. Here goes. Chuckles the Clown wept as he wished he could fight the compulsion that leads to all of this carnage. There can be only fun. That's a great example of a winning Twitvic story, or Twabble as we call him here on the Travelcast. A story in exactly 100 characters, not counting spaces. Go to forums.travelcast.org in the Twabble section, 
We'll pick it and post it early on our Twitter feed, at Drabblecast. Follow us there if you aren't already. You might be next week's winner. It's fun. And that's our show this week, folks, and our HP Lovecraft Month conclusion. Really hope you enjoyed our original stories we brought you this month. I think this one was one of my favorite ever to produce. But it didn't come cheap, folks. Not sure if you're aware, but the big thing in online fiction right now is the standard author pay rate, at least as defined by the SFWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, just recently as of September, jumped from the long-time six cents a word for original fiction standard to eight cents a word. We pay ten cents a word for our commissioned stories, because that's just how much we like manila envelopes stuffed with dead leaves, delivered to our doorstep, of course, and then straight into your earbuds. We pay our voice actors professional rates, we pay our episode artists for their awesome contributions, and might I remind you we're a homespun grassroots kind of weird production here, not on anyone else's payroll but our own, and your donations and support, well that makes this whole thing happen at the core. So if you enjoyed our Lovecraft month, the originals and stuff I described in the intro, consider going to Drabblecast.org and clicking on the Support the Show tab right there at the top. You can donate in any amount, which is much appreciated, or you can sign up for an automated $10 a month subscription, which gets you access to Drabblecast B-Sides. There are 78 extra episodes there, folks, not just stories, but videos, reviews, songs, you name it. It's good times and we appreciate your support. The Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend, spread the word, write a review on iTunes or blog about us. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Bo Kyer. Bo Kyer. Man, I've known that guy for a long time, and I'll, I'll never forget the time seven or eight years ago when he first pulled off his face and revealed to me that he was actually a lizard person. I freaked out, obviously, but you should have seen me when he peeled off the reptile face and it was actually a robot underneath, and he said, Norm, the lizard people are robots, and I thought you should know. And then he, he started drawing his hands up around his synthetic AI jawline as if to keep pulling things off. And he said, do you want me to keep going? And I said, no, no, bro, I'm good, I'm good. You'll, you'll always be, you know, a damn good artist and a great Drabblecast art director to me. Follow him on Instagram at Bokire. Our program this week was brought to you by Melissa Harvey, Jason Smith, Sandra O'Dell, Zimmerman Bledsoe, a pigeon that slams into the large glass window of your living room at full speed and then gets up and does it again and again and again and again and again. Adam Pratt, Samantha Henderson, Tom Baker, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that we shape the clay of the beginning into the shape of the end.